Hey, I got an announcement to make. Um, again, this is just another way that we, we want to serve you all. Um, kind of an important news alert. All right, really has nothing to do per se um, with us. I, I've done all those announcements already. Um, but for some people, this is going to be breaking news, and, it, and it's not time to panic, but you've got a little bit of time, but you need to be aware of what's coming down the pike. Um, for the next two weeks, um, a lot of people are going to be happy, and other people are going to dread the next two weeks. A lot of sorrow and maybe memories or fulfilled, unfulfilled hopes and dreams. Kind of an extra dose of loneliness on top of the COVID thing. Because for the next two weeks, the world will have just an intense, almost illogical focus and fascination and with romantic love. You guys all know that. You know where I was going, right? Two weeks from here. Romantic love. And I know we won't look at any other kind of love, right? We won't ever look at family love or godly love, agape love, or any of the other kind of things. We just got this crazy hyper-focus on romantic love. And, and, and for many, many years, I think this, this holiday kind of steers us away from the love that, that God's word brings out. It's not different. In fact, I truly believe, and I kind of want to share this this morning, is, is human love, I think, gives us a peek at how God loves us. Right, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God always talks about like a marriage, right? It's always in terms of romantic love, just a little bit, because that, that's what we are, our highest level of love that we experience on a regular basis is romantic love. So that's coming up, and every lover, every wannabe lover is going to be searching for the right gift, the right words, the right expression that best exemplifies what love is. So I looked on the, the internet, you guys do this occasionally, I looked for the memes, and they were funny. They were a lot of love is. Some of them were beautiful, I'm not going to go through them, some of them were funny, some of them were rather tragic. Our world still has some pretty crazy ideas of what love is, and you get on the internet and you just think, wow, ugh, they're so far off base. And then we have God's word. Here's a part of the Apostle Paul's description of love. I'm going to start in verse 4. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, a bit of context here because I'm going, to, I'm going to start out in 1 Corinthians, but that's really not where I want to speak from this morning. Um, you're going to catch this in a little bit. Um, chapter 13 is the love chapter, right? You all are, are aware of that. It's like the Apostle Paul's hymn to love, right? Chapter 13, I would say that a third of you in this room, uh, when you got married, your preacher spoke from 1 Corinthians, or there was a song about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 the love chapter, right? We, we, we all love the love chapter. Um, but the context of the love chapter is incredibly important, and this is the reason why I'm not going to preach from this passage this morning necessarily. The context is if you back up one chapter, chapter 12, it's kind of divided up, we'll call it into two halves. And the first half, Paul is spending a greater deal amount of time explaining to the, first, the, the church at Corinth uh, about spiritual gifts, 
right? They were confused about spiritual gifts. And we're going to find out what their confusion was in, in just a little bit. We have the same confusion. And then in the second half, after he explains for the first half, explaining what spiritual gifts are and how they operate, the second half, he talks about the body. He like shifts gears, but they're totally related. When he starts talking about the body, the whole point is people started kind of arguing, hey, I want, I want the most visible position. I want the spotlight position. I don't want to be behind the scenes. I want, I want, you know, I want to be famous. I want to be the big star. And so he's, he's telling them in the body that there are all sorts of different things that are important in the body. And some things are seemingly less important than others, but he goes to great length to say that, no, they are only seemingly unimportant. Every single part of the body is important no matter what you do. Even if it's just filling a pew, you're filling a role. You're playing your part. And so as he explains, right, that these gifts... They were apparently tearing the church of Corinth apart, right? They were arguing who had the greater gift, who was the, who was the greater this, greater that, greater this. Um, and he's not just teaching to add to their knowledge base, right? He's responding to a problem. And it's a problem that they were having, a problem that every one of his early churches were having. It's a problem that we still have in the church today. And it becomes clear at the end of chapter 12, I'm going to jump now to the end of chapter 12, This is right before Paul launches into his hymn of love, right? The end of chapter 12 says this, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now again, he's just spent a whole chapter talking about the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy and tongues and all the really amazing gifts. And then a whole second half of the chapter talking about, hey, right, we're we're a body. Every one of you is important no matter what your gifting is. Your gifting doesn't equate to your importance or your value. The whole chapter... And at the very end, he says this, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Now, that's a little bit confusing, right? I looked at that several times, and I knew what it understood, but I was like, ah. So I'm going to switch over to the message version for just this passage here. Um, this is a paraphrase, just in case you're, you're wondering what the message is. It's a paraphrase, kind of like the old Living Bible. Remember in the 70s, the Living Bible? This is a paraphrase. I, I think it's a really good paraphrase. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, the first part of it says, and some of you, and yet, after that whole chapter, and yet some of you keep competing for the so-called important gifts, right? This is what was going on in the church. Some of you think the spotlight needs to be shining only on you, right? And this is not you. I, I'm, I'm speaking Paul to the Corinthian church, but Paul's speaking to all Christians down through the ages, right? Some of you think you're more important than others. Some of you think you can do this all on your own. Some of you think you don't need anybody else. Some of you think you don't need to participate in the life of the church. Sunday worship services, Sunday school, small groups, ministry projects, right? You don't need to participate in that. Paul concludes... Again, and yet some of you keep competing for the so-called important parts, but now I want to lay out a far better way for you. I love this passage. Love this passage. A far better way. And what is the far better way? It's love. It's love. Love is the most important aspect of our faith. In fact, it's the only thing that can bring unity to an incredibly selfish humanity, whether that humanity is saved or not, right? We all know this. We know this. In fact, Paul says that love is even more important than faith. What? Love is even more important than faith? Wow, Paul's going off the deep end here. 
Here's the intro to Paul's chapter 13, right? The hymn to love, the love chapter. Uh, Leanne read this just a bit earlier. Now, I want you to notice something. It starts out by describing what many people think is love, but Paul said, no, not really. Check this out. This This is in the NIV again. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels and do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And now you notice here, before I continue, he's going through the gifts of the Spirit that he just now mentioned in chapter 12, right? Make that connection. He's just saying, hey, these gifts are really, really great, but without love, they just don't, they don't count. They don't matter. They get you nowhere, right? You're spinning, but you're not getting anywhere. He's categorically cleaving all these things that we do in church from love, right? Everything. Continue. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, wow, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, right? We do that, right? We play the martyr all the time. Oh, look how hard I'm working. (laughs) Kind of drives me nuts when people do that. But I do not love, I gain Nothing. And then Paul concludes the chapter with these words. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Right? Having faith in God and his promises, it gives us an unswervering hope, right? That these promises will be fulfilled in our lives. But here's the surprising corollary to this passage here, surprising truth. Um, without love, our faith is groundless, And our hope is eventually destroyed. Without love. Now, you're you're, going, oh, pastor, pastor, what are you talking about? It's like without God. (laughs) Hear me out. Without love, your faith is groundless. You have faith in an idea. Therefore, your hope is eventually going to be destroyed. You will lose hope because the one that you have faith in is not trustworthy. I want to show you what I mean here. The Apostle Paul also wrote three letters, right? Y'all know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did I say Apostle Paul? I meant Apostle John. So he writes the Gospel of John, but he also writes three letters at the very end of your, your New Testament. It's very short little letters. I um, mean, speaking to, to a, 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 the, the Christian community, um, and he's writing to warn them about false ideas, right? Misguided thinking. And in just three words, three words, he explains why the greatest thing in the world is love and why without love, our faith is something less than God. Our faith is in something less than God, which will eventually destroy our hope. This is in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. And here are the three words. I've highlighted four of them, but focus on the last three. God is love. And we just kind of read over that. And for years and years, I just kind of read over that. And and I read it wrong. I think I read it wrong. And I want to make sure we're all reading it correctly this morning. In this statement, there are three. Three statements are all separated, but they're all kind of weighty. Right? The first statement is love comes from God. If you were to drop down in this letter to verse 19, it says, 
um, that we only love because God loved us first. Love comes from God. Again, I mentioned this earlier. Before Jesus, the world had some pretty crazy ideas of love. They were filled with ideas of vengeance and hate, actually. Right? That's the way they loved. By destroying people who weren't a part of your culture, your club, your family, your tribe. That was love. God's like, no, that's not love. That's not love at all. Love comes from God. Jesus showed us perfect love. Not just family and tribe. And then he commanded us to go and do likewise. Love everybody. The second statement is if you love others, you know God. And love is the proof. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. The third statement, if you don't love, then you don't know God. And your lack of love is the proof. Now, the why behind these three statements is because God is love. Now, notice, notice this. This is, this is, I've got to slow down here for just a minute. This isn't just a description of one of God's attributes, right? He doesn't have love and mercy and grace. That, that's not what John is saying here, right? Check this out. God is love isn't the same as saying God is loving or he's just or he's good. Those are adjectives, Right? Those of you who know all about your grammar, yell if I'm doing this wrong. But an adjective describes a person, place, or thing. Loving and good and just, those describe God. That's not what John is saying. He said God is love. He didn't say God is loving. That's a different statement. He also didn't say God loves. So that's an adverb. Like God loves, right? He, he blesses. He, he does all these wonderful things, things that he does, Right, verbs. And it's not the same as love is God. Right? We don't worship an emotion. What I feel for Diane isn't God. So don't, don't, don't confuse the two. Right? God is a person. He's not an emotion. And again, this isn't just praise for God. John's not just like, wow, look how amazing God is. He's making a very important statement about his nature and his character. And again, spoken of a single person. Now notice, I'm talking about God. Can hang with me here. Spoken of a single person, these words don't make sense. Right? Love has to have an object. Otherwise, it's just an idea. If I say I love and I don't really love anybody, well, then I don't love. I just said a sentence. <laughs> what I do proves that I love. But God isn't just a single person. Instead, listen to this. Instead, he and grammar, grammar, <laughs> follow me on this. I, I've done this on purpose. He are three in one. <laughs> Hang in there now. And the persons of God exist in eternal relationship with each other. Relationship that consists of pure, unflawed love. And this is why he do what they does. God is love because God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they live in a perfect, have always lived eternal in a perfect, loving relationship. Always giving, always receiving. Never stepping on the other one's toes, right? Always bragging about the other two. Never bringing focus on themselves. Even when God says in the Old Testament, like, I'm a jealous God, don't get confused, right? He's not talking about him as opposed to his son and the Holy Spirit, right? He's immediately in that statement. He's saying, look, I, I'm about relationship. I'm, about, I'm not a single. I, I'm about relationship. The father loves the son. 
and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And this is who God is. And this is why he do what they does. I know some of you, my mom would be flipping right now if she's watching. The early Greek theologians, they, two or three hundred years after, after Christ had passed, they, they, the, the Greek culture had infiltrated, inundated the, the Mediterranean world. Um, and they had noticed that in the Greek culture, they have a, a dance called perichoresis in which at least three or more people, they, they kind of have a, a twirling, it's a circle dance, right? And the early theologians, they looked at this and they watched these three, four, five, six, seven people, didn't matter who it was, but it was always more than two. There was always three or more. And they, they, it was, it, they would dance in circles and, and they would have just this perfect, somehow perfect rhythm, perfect unity Right? With each of the dancers giving and receiving perfectly, nobody overstepping anybody else. It's just this incredible, beautiful dance. And the early theologian said, this is, this is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is a perfect description. And we try in other ways, right? Clover leaf and you know, ice and water. And they all kind of fall apart eventually. Right? Because this is not something that the human mind can really get itself around. And if it could, I don't think God would be the God who he is. It'd be the God that we could get our heads around. That's not God. We see this, this, this relationship first in Genesis chapter 1, which tells us that we were made in this image, this plural image, this relational image, right? When we think about the image of God, we, we kind of, we, in our minds, we see God the Father only. But that's, a, that's inaccurate, right? When we see when we see the image of God, we see a relationship. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Right? So we're relationally hardwired because the one whose image we're made in is relational in their very nature. It's not a description of them. It's not something that they do. It's, in their very, it's, it's what they are. It's not what they do. It's what they are. Essentially Relational. And then listen, listen to this in John chapter 14. Now we're, going to, we're looking at a letter that John wrote at the end of the New Testament. Now we're going to go back to his gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? John chapter 14, verse 7 says this. If you really know me, now, now watch how the Trinity speaks of one another. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. And then in verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So the Son does nothing but point to the Father, right? And then from John chapter 16, we learn that the Holy Spirit does nothing but point to the Son and the Father. John chapter 16, verse 12 starts this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. I'll keep reading. Verse 15. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Right? So who does the Father, God the Father, constantly talk about? God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Who does God the Son constantly talk about? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Who does the Holy Spirit constantly talk about? God the Father and God the Son. Right? That, that just, that, that, that they're, 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 they're just giving, always giving of one another. So when we say that God is love, 
We're not saying that it's something that he does. It's, it, it's a part of him. It's, it's who he is. It's a lo- he is a loving relationship. God is a loving relationship. I love that. hope it's accurate. At some level, so at some level, the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit becomes our model for living a healthy life, healthy relationships, right? And a healthy witness, right? It's a shared life that we're called to live. An open life, a sacred life, a giving life, and a receiving life. Not a solitary life. Not a closed life. It's not a hoarding life. It's not a taking life. What part does the Father keep from himself, to himself, from the Son and the Spirit? No part. Right? What part does the Son hold back from the Father and the Spirit? No part. And what part does the Spirit withhold from the Son and the Father? No part. Now, here's the kicker. Here's where we like, yes. On top of all this perfect, beautiful relational love, consider this. God invites us to join the dance, right? He's inviting us to join that circle of absolutely perfect love. And that's amazing. That, that, there, there's nothing short of amazing. C. Baxter Kruger writes this. From all eternity, God is not alone and solitary, but lives as Father, Son, and Spirit in a rich and glorious and abounding fellowship of utter oneness. There is no emptiness in this circle, no depression or fear or insecurity. The Trinitarian life is a great dance of unchained communion and intimacy fired by passionate, self-giving, and others-centered love and mutual delight. This life is good. It's right and unique and full of music and joy and blessedness and peace. Such love gives rise to such togetherness and fellowship and oneness is the womb, womb, W-O-M-B, the womb of the universe and of humanity within it. The stunning truth is that this triune God in amazing and lavish love determined to open the circle and share the Trinitarian life, Trinitarian life with others. I love that. We, a relational love is the womb that we were born into. That's who we are. So first, a few words about dancing, perichoresis, right? First of all, you can't refuse to dance. <laughs> you can't refuse to dance, right? Because dance is a full participation thing. Like I, I know in the 60s, I, I think this is what happened, right? I, if I recall, if I look at old movies, dancing used to be, you know, a couple, Right? And then in about the 60s, 70s, when I went to my first junior high school dance, right, it was all, you kind of danced alone. <laughs> and I remember my first junior high dance, I know this is horrible, but um, I didn't know how to dance because I'm a good Nazarene. But I really liked this girl. And so I went to the dance. And I didn't even think, didn't even dawn on me, I don't know how to dance. Didn't even dawn on me. All I was focused on is, did I have the courage to ask this girl to dance with me? So I finally got up the courage. I think it was like the second to the last song. <laughs> and I asked her, and I got out there, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I don't know how to dance. I'm quickly looking around, and she looks like she's got moves. And Okay, so you Nazarenes who are saying, like, dancing, I mean, I know our manual said this, dancing in a provocative manner that will lead to the breaking down of sexual, you know, barriers. Anybody feeling it? I just, just want to let you all relax. I was not out there grooving and shaking my thing, right? Okay, all right. You can't refuse to dance. Refusing the invitation is to refuse love and life. To refuse to dance is to refuse God. 
right? By refusing to participate in the dance, we reject the love that is so integral, so essential, so absolutely necessary to life. Well lived in the dance, the good life, the abundant life, right? And related to this, you can't have, you can't keep others from joining the dance, right? We all kind of like to do that. Well, this is, you know, you're not, stay outside the barn doors, right? This, this is our dance, it's like, God, no, no. He's invited everybody into the dance and we are not in a position to reject people from the dance. Also, you can't decide to dance alone. You can't dance alone and then say you love God. I think you're, hopefully you're seeing that right now. If you aren't participating in that love relationship that is God, then you're really not participating in love. You're winging it. You're... You're stabbing in the dark. You're like the Athenians, right? Paul, you're looking for this God. You don't even know his name. Let me tell you his name. <laughs> his name is Jesus. The person that dances alone, this is the branch that's not connected to the vine. It slowly withers and it dies. And then there's a third caveat here. God leads and we follow, right? This is how we learn to dance. This is how we learn to love. God calls the steps and we follow. Right? We aren't children of God like, like Jesus is, but God adopted us as children right? so that he could expand this circle of love and invite us into it. And of course, our first ancestors probably broke out of the dance. They decided, I don't want to dance. Maybe I want to dance alone. I think it'll be more fun. I, I don't know what they were thinking, but, and all humanity has been chasing down that rabbit hole ever since. But Jesus came to restore the dance. Right? Those of you who have removed yourselves from the dance, I don't know how to dance. Christ comes, join the dance. Come on, join the dance. Within our circle of love, you will learn to love. You will learn to love to dance. Your life will be so filled with joy, you, you won't be able to hold it in. Number four, and this is the last one, sin destroys our ability and our desire to dance with God. One of the very best descriptions and definitions I've ever seen of sin is that we sin when we fail to love completely. By refusing to dance and by going it alone or dancing solo, we're not allowing God to call out the steps. We might say we love, but the truth that is God isn't in us. To accept and live into the three persons of the Trinity as God has revealed himself to be is to participate in all that they are doing, right? Not to be a spectator. To join God the Father in creating holy spaces in darkness, to join God the Son in redeeming, and to join the Holy Spirit in drawing people into holy community, right? This is, this is who we are. An article I read recently best illustrates how sin wrecks the dance. I want to conclude with this. It went something like this. His name was Philip. can't remember his last name. This is a real person. This is a real event. Conversation with something like this. Lord, why do you hate sin? Because we all seem to like it down here. And God replied, Philip, why do you hate cancer? Background of the story, this, this Philip had a fiancé early in his life. And as they were preparing for the marriage, the whole bit, she um, was diagnosed with cancer. And she died before the wedding date. 
And Philip didn't think he'd ever be able to love again. Right? His life just became dark. And the idea of dancing, he probably wasn't a dancer. He says he wasn't a dancer. But, but just the idea of going out and enjoying life was off the table. It was, it was, it was done. He, he wasn't even sure he could ever, ever, ever do it again. Then he finally meets somebody and he falls in love again. And, and he has this desire to dance. Right? But in this whole process, he, he, he makes some stunning discoveries about God in this struggle of his. Cancer had robbed Philip of his first love. It not only stole their future, it stole the very presence. Its very presence, cancer, handicapped the time that we, that we did have together. These are his words. The more cancer took over, the more it limited our freedom and our choices. Sometimes all I could do was sit beside her and hold her hand. Cancer ultimately destroyed our relationship. God is saying, this is why I hate sin. I love relationships, and I love people. And sin wrecks everything. Sin, it gets to the point where all I can do is hold a person's hand because they, they can't dance anymore. They can't participate in a life of love. And, and all I can do is, is hold their hand. This is why I hate sin. Because I love people. And sin separates me from the people that I love. When we love as we were meant to love, sin loses its appeal. I remember reading a sermon and, and the guy asked a very it's a question that stuck with me all these years husbands, wives he's speaking why do you keep doing things that you know your spouse hates and it struck me it's like why I know she hates that I, she, I know she hates it when I leave silverware on the counter I know she ha- I mean there's, and there's you know she knows there's things I hate and if we really love each other, and, and it took me a while to get to this point, it's like, why do I keep doing that? And I stopped. I stopped. It was the weirdest thing. Well, not completely. Don't talk to Diane. Just, it, I, I improved. There's the word I'm looking for. So, so, uh, when we love as we were meant to love, sin loses its appeal and its attraction for us. So love, love's a dance. And the next time God calls... Care to dance. I don't know what the dance will be like. It might be a ministry project. It might just be a Sunday morning service. I don't know. But when he asks you care to dance, understand something, right? It's not on you. He will show you the steps. He will show you the way. You will have the time of your life. It will be the best dance party you've ever been to or the only one you've ever been to. (laughs) Bow your head. Father, You want to live an active life with us, a life in which we bless each other. We bless you, Father. Father, you bless us. We bless other people. We just love. But, Father, don't let us be confused. Don't let us be misled. Love isn't, it's not an emotion. It's you are love. And when we live with you, within you, and we are filled with your spirit, we have love. 
So what John said in his first letter is absolutely true. If I don't love, you're not in me. And if I do love, then that's the proof that you are in me. So, Father, for every person listening and deciding, I'm tired of doing it alone. I don't dance well alone. Father, can I join the dance? He's already extended the invitation. And if you're listening, it's a simple thing. Father, I want to join the dance. I'm tired of dancing alone. Call the shots. Call the shots from here on out, and I, I will simply follow. And I can already feel hope returning. Because your promises are always fulfilled, Father. Every promise you've made has been fulfilled so far. And that's where my hope lies. So, Father, help us lean into love. Help us to lean into relationships. Help us to understand that this is not a solitary life. That absolute joy and happiness will only arrive when we give to each other. When we join in. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Jesus, for restoring the dance. Father, and Holy Spirit, thank you for reminding us and pointing these things out in your word. Otherwise, this would be, just be so hard to understand. Father, but your, your Holy Spirit brings us understanding and then shows us the way that this should be played out in our lives. So, Father, we, we love you all. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.